When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast dedicated to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a current release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here with Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're stealing the show with a pair of heist movies, both about a crew of specialists working like a well-oiled machine to steal a huge pile of money generated by a popular sporting event. In both cases, the thieves claim to have thinly drawn moral reasons, but they're really motivated by family. And in both cases, the actual motive is to entertain the audience by making the heist as convoluted and personality-driven as possible. Okay, Genevieve, what kind of crew do you think we're going to need to introduce these two films? I'm thinking a Boski, a Jim Brown, a Miss Daisy, two Jethro's, and a Leon Spinks, and the biggest Ella Fitzgerald ever. Uh, or you could just have me do it. And what's the fun in that? Put it this way. The version where I just explained this won't take two hours of banter, character building, and plot fakeouts. Here's the gist. Steven Soderbergh made Logan Lucky and Ocean's Eleven 16 years apart, but they have a lot in common, both in focus and structure. They both start with a mastermind who wants to pull off a heist and has to assemble a crew of old familiars to do it. Both films follow the process of building the team, then building the scheme. And then both films launch into the action, taking us through the big theft, then dropping back to reveal there was more going on than the audience realized. But the two films also have some significant differences. Ocean's Eleven is a remake of a 1960 heist film starring Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr., and Soderbergh's version keeps some of the original film's jazzy swagger and sense of cool. It's set in a Las Vegas full of slick high rollers and high-tech con artists. Logan Lucky jumps between West Virginia and North Carolina, and its band of thieves are blue-collar workers and good old boy rednecks, and the film mocks some of them more than it admires them. We'll get into some of the class and culture differences between the two films as we look at how Soderbergh tells two similar stories in two different settings. That'll also give us a good opportunity to talk about some of the cinematic tricks both Logan Lucky and Ocean's Eleven are using, from the myth of the gentleman thief to the heist movie that deceives the audience as it's deceiving its patsies. In this part of this week's podcast, we'll talk about the Ocean's Eleven series and what it says about Steven Soderbergh's affection for smooth criminals. And on Thursday, the second half of the show, we'll look at Logan Lucky's much less smooth operators and how they keep their motives just as mysterious. So keep your wallets close and your security badges closer as we explore some imperfect crimes. It's never been done before. What's the target? When was the last time you were in Vegas? You want to knock over a casino? Three casinos? Vegas, huh? Vegas. Vegas. Fantastic. The heist is impossible. Casino security cannot be beaten. You're out of your minds. Exactly. You are up to something, Danny. What? You're pulling a job, aren't you? You're a thief and a liar. I only lied about being a thief. You're going to need a crew as nuts as you are. Who do you got in mind? 
smash and grab job, huh? Slightly more complicated than that. Say we get down the elevator we can't move, and past the guards with the guns, and into the vault we can't open. We're just supposed to walk out of there with $150 million in cash? Yeah. Oh. But these guys, that is the sexiest thing I have ever seen, are just crazy enough. You'd need at least a dozen guys doing a combination of cons. Do you understand any of this? I'll explain later. To pull off the con. Someone call for a doctor? Of the century. These days, we think of Steven Soderbergh as a remarkably eclectic director who dips into whatever genre is interesting him at the moment, and a film like Logan Lucky doesn't seem particularly out of place in his filmography. But back in 2000, Soderbergh was more known as an erratic filmmaker without a fixed or predictable voice. His tender, low-key debut, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, was hard to reconcile with his propulsive thug thriller, The Limey. And neither one of them fit with his surreal meta-experiment, Schizopolis, much less his crowd-pleasing mainstream, a mom-on-a-mission film, Aaron Brockovich, or his sprawling, best-director-winning crime drama, Traffic. So while Ocean's Eleven came as a surprise because Soderbergh wasn't really known for this kind of high-gloss, banter-heavy caper movie, it maybe wasn't as much of a surprise as it might have been if he'd been working consistently in one genre or story mode throughout his career. If anything, Ocean's Eleven at least had a little more precedent than some of his projects. If critics were looking to puzzle out Soderbergh's interest in remaking a 1960 Rat Pack movie with George Clooney in the Frank Sinatra role, they could at least point to Soderbergh's 1998 thriller Out of Sight, which also starred Clooney and was also a heist movie with a non-linear story and an ensemble of famous faces. Still, writing for the New York Times in 2001, Elvis Mitchell said this, This movie is an odd choice for Mr. Soderbergh, who is perhaps the ne-plus-ultra director of films about people living on the margins. I'm not sure why he chose to remake Ocean's Eleven, a movie so much about insiders that the stars of the original couldn't have cared less if there was an audience for the picture. Mitchell does have a point about Soderbergh's strengths, but even if the film seems like a stretch for him, it's still a delight. Clooney's Danny Ocean, a career con man, wants to reclaim his masculinity from casino owner Terry Benedict, who's currently dating Danny's ex-wife, Tess. So Danny sets out to rob three of Terry's casinos, with the help of a crew of con job professionals played by several generations of movie stars, including Elliot Gould and Carl Reiner, Brad Pitt and Bernie Mac, Don Cheadle and Casey Affleck. There are a wide range of ages and styles here. But screenwriter Ted Griffin gives most of them snappy banter or kvetchy monologues as they all pile on the quirks. They may be insiders in the sense that they're successful professionals who walk away with millions, but they're outsiders in that they're all mismatched oddballs who are hard to reconcile with any kind of real-world profession or situation. They're all types. They're all functions as much as they are characters. And for most of them, the movie isn't about who they are so much as how they function. Griffin's script lays out part of an initial plan, starting with a list of types Pitt's character thinks will be necessary to pull off the scheme. Then the story jumps into the middle of the heist, where we watch things going wrong that aren't necessarily actually going wrong. Finally, the film pulls back to redefine what we just saw. It's a hat trick of a movie, memorable as much for its slick speed and its rabbit-from-a-hat sleight of hand as it is for any particular moment or character. But audiences certainly did find it memorable and worthy of revisiting. Ocean's Eleven was a monster box office hit for Soderbergh, an $85 million movie that brought in more than $450 million worldwide and spawned two significantly less memorable sequels. Today, it feels a bit like one of those one-for-the-studio, one-for-me projects that can bankroll and justify any number of smaller, more personal films. But at the same time, there's something quintessentially Soderberghian about Ocean's Eleven and his fascination, not just with the grumpy loner outsiders who fight for what they believe in, but with the slick outsiders that come together to break the bank and walk away as winners. What? 
need reason. <laughs> Don't say money. Why do this? Why not do it? Because yesterday I walked out of the joint after losing four years of my life and you're cold decking teen beat cover boys. Because the house always wins. Play long enough, you never change the stakes, the house takes you. Unless when that perfect hand comes along, you bet big and then you take the house. Been practicing that speech a little bit. Did I rush it? Felt like I rushed it. That was good. I liked it. Team B thing was harsh. So we're a couple of sequels into the Oceans series, and there's an all-woman remake coming up on the horizon. After all of that, how does Oceans 11 play for you guys today, Scott? Pretty well, I would say. <laughs> uh, pretty well. I mean, I think the uh, sequels, particularly the second one, do stick to the ribs a little bit more than uh, than you imply in your keynote. But I do still quite like Oceans 11. I've seen it many times this is an easy movie to see and i think that's kind of the point of it it's funny how you know on this show we like to dig into the deeper themes of what certain films have to offer and i i actually do think that oceans 11 is a surface level kind of experience by design and i we can maybe get into that a little bit but but it is about Soderbergh showing off his dexterity as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, him showcasing this this range of stars and uh, the glitz and glamour of Vegas and you know just the fun of pulling the wool over uh, uh, the audience's eyes. I mean, I think that is its primary mission. And for me, I, it's for, hard for me to find a whole lot of subtext to dig into below that. But I don't know if, if others have that experience with it or not. Well, I mean, I don't think I've got a great case for its, its deep subtext, but I think it is a, a wonderful example of what you want from a Hollywood movie sometimes. Oh, sure. I mean, it is pure pleasure, this movie. I, I, I really enjoy watching it. And, you know, sometimes you want to see Brad Pitt, like, get in and be a really tortured, really kind of disappear into a character. Sometimes you just want to see Brad Pitt be a really handsome, charming <laughs> man on the yeah. movie screen. Mm-hmm. And this gives you that, and George Clooney and, and Julia Roberts. It's just, and the dialogue too is such, you know, you don't get dialogue that crisp as often as, as you want it. I mean, there's just exchanges in here that, that, that are just so compact and witty and they stick in the mind. Like, like the lines, like, you know, does he make you laugh? Well, he doesn't make me cry. It's just a wonderful, you know, and that tells you so much about those characters' relationship and just a minimal amount of words. It's wonderful. And, and like at this point, he was so confident behind the camera and, and so willing to try different things that you, you know, really don't usually try to get away with in a big budget Hollywood movie and, and get away with it beautifully here. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this film. Yeah, uh, third that, and uh, I agree, especially in terms of the dialogue and especially in terms of the Danny Tess uh, banter, which I think is kind of the only really reason for the Tess character to, to be in this movie because that those conversations between Julia Roberts and George Clooney are just so electric on screen. To go back to what we were saying about this being kind of a surface level movie, I agree that like I don't think there is a necessarily a deeper thematic reading here. And I don't think Soderbergh would say this, but I do think that you can kind of look at this as not exactly a movie about movie making, but a movie that is is about showing off the skill and the sleight of hand that goes into movie making. And, you know, I was reading some interviews with Soderbergh about how he was very anxious to make this film. And like it was a lot of stuff that he hadn't done before. And just in terms of all the moving parts, he knew he was going to have to manage in the shot composition and the editing and how he was going to pull this off. I think it, it feels like an echo of what is happening on screen in terms of that 
them pulling something off that's very complicated and a lot can go wrong and high stakes and all that. So yeah, you don't see those, you don't see any sweat though. It, no. it seems no. so effortless and like willing to do. And like, you don't see any sweat in the characters either. Right, exactly. There's, there's a little well, except bit of for sweat. except for. Um, the nervous guy. Uh, and, and there's some sticky situations. The uh, well, when the when the nervous guy gets lost Livingston. behind the scenes, Livingston, when he's yeah. uh, when he's he loses it for a second, when he loses the plot, as it were, the the people watching him on screen are definitely yeah, sweating. And the, the acrobat getting stuck in, in the uh, vault. <laughs> oh, with his, yeah. uh, there's definitely some sweat true, when he gets true. his hand mm-hmm. caught. But for the most part, they are cool, collected. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Soderbergh has expressly said that making a film is like doing a criminal heist. That, like, I mean, he's he's made that that comparison very clear. Oh, and that, here, I thought I was smart. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were just sort of being subtle about the the things that he said in interviews. But yeah, he he definitely sees a comparison there. And when he says that, what I see is not so much movie making actually being like pulling off a heist as I see his admiration for these characters. Like the fact that he thinks these guys are really pretty cool. And this movie just feels like it's it's sitting back and admiring these guys uh, regardless of what they do. To, to the degree that Ocean's Eleven doesn't work for me, it's because that sense of admiration is so strong that – to me, the movie doesn't really interrogate anything going on here, like why they're doing it, how what what the motivation for for people is besides money. Like, what do they all need the money for? Like, by the end of the movie, Bernie Mac's out of a job uh, and could probably use that money. But you know, for everybody else, it's just sort of it's assumed like there's money and we want it. So of course we're going to do something incredibly Rube Goldbergian to take it. Well, I think, I I mean, these are for the most part career criminals. And I think there, there's, it's definitely established that for some of them, like Brad Pitt's character and Carl Reiner's character, like they have been out of the game and they kind of relish the opportunity to show that they still got it. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, they are criminals going after a big score. Money is definitely a a motivating factor. But I do like that observation about Carl Reiner. Reiner's character in particular about just like I think there's just an excitement about working with this team and Mm -hmm. and doing something impossible and incredible and uh, uh, somehow pulling it off. I don't think he's the type of guy who is in any mood to accept a proposition like this until it comes to him and the circumstances sort of reveal themselves as appealing almost like it's like if you want to use a movie metaphor it's almost an an artistic impulse to to want to be a part of something like this yeah uh to quote soderbergh real quick he when describing saul bloom carl reiner's character he said i always imagined saul to be like a woman who used to be asked out a lot and now isn't asked out at all and hasn't been asked out for a long time but is still very proud when saul is approached by rusty he feigns disinterest when in fact he desperately wants to be in on it he's trying not to let on how much this caper means to him but see i I feel like that is a Mm. deeper take on that character than the film necessarily gets you Mm. now i am not saying that this film could in any way be improved by an hour of of (laughs) the wire-esque backstory and investigation into each of the characters i do feel that if you if you don't share the the film's admiration this would be like a very shallow and unsatisfying experience and it's the degree to which soderbergh and and griffin who you know is providing the dialogue and the actors who are very charming people it's a pretty pretty good cast yeah, it's a hell of a cast. And I think, I mean, I, I basically, I think that this movie like works like the machine it's trying to emulate. And you can just feel where if like any of the gears slipped, the whole thing might fall apart. Because it is, as, as Scott says, it's a very shallow endeavor. 
But I think one of the keys to it, which Scott also kind of touched on, is that part of the fun of a heist movie is like these guys all kind of respect each other and admire each other. And some of them flip each other crap. It reminded me a little bit of the Fast and Furious movies in that sense, Mm -hmm. is there's that sense of affection between them that sometimes comes with ribbing each other super hard. It feels like a hangout movie. It feels like a hangout movie where everybody's very busy all the time, but you get to spend some time with like a lot of very charismatic people who seem to enjoy each other's company. And I like that there are no twists that involve any of them betraying each other. Mm, sure. Um, the, there, is an, there is that honor among thieves. That's an idea that's, just, that's accepted and not questioned or it doesn't become a reveal in itself. There are other twists that the film uh, would rather you know, r- reveal to you, which is just how they do this incredible thing of you know, robbing three casinos. And So I, pr- I appreciate that. And it makes it fun. It makes it feel, again, that sort of team effort. The other thing I would want to say about Ocean's Eleven 2 is I think it may have been Soderbergh's idea of presenting the state of the Hollywood star, certainly the male star, but I guess you have Julia Roberts in here as well, you know, at the, at the turn of the century. Because, like, I mean, who, what, what, what other film are you going to turn to to just to really get a sense of, like, who are the most glamorous dudes out there? <laughs> and it's these guys. I mean, I guess and that's maybe the connection, too, to that, to that Rat Pack film too is just this is what cool looks like in two th- in the year 2001 yeah if you're going to remake the quintessential rat pack movie you better have the contemporary equivalent of the rat pack perhaps not as many multifaceted talents there i haven't bought any george clooney albums lately but uh, <laughs> uh but certainly i don't think anyone felt let down you're not getting like the the third tier stars and to kind of go back to the conversation about this being a sort of shallower service level movie i mean it's set in vegas like yeah. i think that that is very purposeful. I mean, obviously the original is set in Vegas too, but I think in terms of choosing to do this story and choosing how to do this story, like it's set in a city that is all about glitz and glamour and appearances and the what's on the surface and money. And, you know, like it, it feels like a very Vegas movie. I mean, obviously you can make a, you know, a more complex, thoughtful movie about Vegas, but you can also make this kind of movie about Vegas and it works really well. It's also, I mean, this is a really big cast. There is not a whole lot of time to dig deep into people's backstories. How many people are on the team in this one? Uh, I think 13. Okay. So it's, right. it's around a dozen. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like a baker's dozen where the baker already ate two of them. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't you remember the scene with uh, with Clooney talking to Pitt where he's like, we've, we've got 10. You, yeah, 10 is good, right? Yeah. Dead silence. You think we so, need one more? You think we need one uh, more? There's, there's so many fun winks in this movie. One I didn't even catch when, when they're doing the hilarious poker instruction with the young stars <laughs> in Hollywood. Oh. There's a line of dog I never I, I, I caught where George Clooney's character says to Topher Grace's character. So is it hard making the transition from TV to film, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And it took for grace something like not for me, which well, you know, that didn't, maybe didn't work out quite a, that well. He was ascendant at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that's another moment that plays kind of differently today because like those those guys aren't exactly the up and coming like shining stars of today. They, they haven't supplanted the Clooney's and Pitts of the of the world. Yeah, and so sure. so yeah, the, one of the laughs of that scene is just is how they start referring to them on the first a first name basis. Mm-hmm. Like, audience of the futures may not know who Topher Grace is. So Topher, him calling him Topher. Is I mean, Topher is going to be a funny name no matter what. That is true. And Sorry you know, to any Topher listeners. Even for an audience that does not know all of those boys by their first names. And one girl. And one girl who barely speaks. Yeah. All Reds is still a, a laugh line yeah. to play. <laughs> all Reds. All <laughs> Reds. Yeah. Oh, and, and you have six cards. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, I mean, what do you guys think of this, like, as a, a Soderbergh film? Like, do you, I, looking back on his career, as I was prepping the keynote, and looking back on what the, kind of some of the things people have said at him, about him at various points of his career, he's just got a really eclectic career. But I've come across a, a handful of sort of, like, maybe we can tie Soderbergh together theories. Do you guys have any? Do you, is there anything here that, that specifically ties this to his filmography for you? Well, you know, I was uh, when you were getting to that part of your keynote. I, I found myself objecting to little bits about how Schizopolis and the Limey are not like each other. When I thought think they have absolutely everything in common, but I think there was a point again on the surface level. He's really interested in constructing films precisely. I mean, he, he's he's involved now in every aspect of filmmaking. He he is Peter Andrews, the cinematographer. Now he's right up there in the mix. And I, I think also you, Marianne Bernard. The editor. Marianne Bernard, the editor. So he's he's his presence is felt in every critical aspect of, of the production and, and um, now they're they're saying that he may also be the screenwriter of Logan Lucky yeah. under yet another I name. That was his wife. Yeah, the, there's, there's there's a lot there's of theorizing. Yeah. Oh, really? But we can talk yeah. about that, that in, in the second collaboration, half. but but and in it, terms of what you were saying about him having yeah. like his hands in every part, like he does not usually write his films. That's true. Which, which is kind of an interesting wrinkle in any unified theory of Soderbergh, you know. But he is obviously selecting what scripts. Yeah, he, like he, to and, he and he'll re and he'll rework things too. I mean, the Limey yeah. being a very famous example of uh, that with that commentary track with <laughs> the, uh, best, the best commentary best track. commentary track ever, yeah, ever where, where the, the screenwriter Lem Dobbs is is uh, getting on his case for totally messing up messing yeah, with here, the screenplay. Here's another scene you messed up one like, <laughs> here's some of that tarantino nonsense you like to add in <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I think to i mean to me uh, he started as an editor and i think he has so much respect for just how a film is put together and what uh, a cut here and a cut there and, and uh, the way film can play with time he's tough to pin down because he's so makes so many different types of movies yet i feel that there's kind of this sort of this command of film craft that's that runs through it all and if you want to like draw a line in his career to me he kind of runs out of steam with like the first wave of what he can do after the underneath. And then Schizopolis, yeah. that strange experimental film where he's, you know, self financing, he's starring in it, he's just putting up whatever crazy idea he can get on there. I think he's kind of, it kind of liberated him because I think you get a really great stream of films after that. I mean, out of sight and the limey and traffic and this and Aaron Brockovich all in a row where it seems like there's just this influx of new ideas and, and, and new techniques. And I think that to me is kind of the application of that phase to the biggest possible Hollywood project you could have, or at least a very large scale Hollywood movie. And I mean, I think Ocean's Eleven and Logan Lucky is a very clear example of one of his biggest preoccupations as a director, which is money and class and like how it affects what people do and how they relate to each other. <laughs> in in that respect, this pairing like just could not be more Soderberghian. In a way, the, the one thing that is missing here, though, is is need, right? You don't get a sense that any of these guys need this heist in the way they might in well, other films that were other films where money is a, a really important motivating factor. I'd I mean, like, Danny Ocean is an ex-con just out of prison. I mean, they famously don't have uh, the biggest leg up. Uh, you, no, you know? yeah, but, but could, <laughs> could he not make? You know, could this guy sure, not I mean, make ten thousand dollars just the moment he steps out of the out of prison? I mean, about, yeah, yeah. Also, I don't think that he. But, I don't. I don't 
think that what we see him needing in this movie is money. I right. think what we see him needing is is Tess. And I think that moment where he sits down and talks to her and it's just it's a very pushy, almost sleazy moment where she keeps saying, you know, no, go away. And he keeps ignoring her and doing what he wants. And then Andy Garcia shows up and, and takes his seat and takes Tess's hand and starts looking into her eyes. And Clooney stands there over the two of them with just this this sense of like revulsion and almost desperation that we don't see in him at any other point in the movie. I mean, when when a thug comes to beat him up, he has complete control over that situation. He's planned for it. When things go wrong on the heist, they're all part of the plan. But that moment over the table, I think you see like uh, just like a naked hurt in him where he knows that the cool thing to do would be to turn his back on the table and walk away. And he can't do it. And he's hurting. And I, I think that's the only real moment of vulnerability we get with him. Clint is so good also at conveying a lot of emotions while grinning. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just, just the, the <laughs> or, eyes. A, a raised the, eyebrow. Yeah. These sort of su- these subtle inflections. I mean, he's, you know, it's, it's why he's a movie star. That's why that's, that's what a movie star can do. He's also just, I mean, you can't, you can't beat the voice. You can't beat the, the yeah. voice and the, the smoothness of his affect for a role like this, where what he's trying to bring across is consummate control and professionalism. He's really good. Yeah. And Brad Pitt, that applies to him, too, in this movie. Like, they're just, as we said, it's a hell of a cast. But, like, the that pair, specifically, George Clooney is the idea man and Brad Pitt is the, the detail man. You know, it's just, and they, they both have a similar level of charisma, but it's a slightly different type of charisma that I think gives those characters a, a distinction that is important to how they function in the story. It's fun to see Matt Damon cast as uh, the up-and-comer uh, yeah. in, in mm-hmm. the crew, which is kind of paralleling where he was in his career at the time, too. I, I thought it was so funny seeing Casey Affleck in this yes. after, like, this has been a, a year for, like, intense Casey Affleck performances between A Ghost Story and uh, Manchester by the Sea. So, like, seeing him... You know, back when he was Ben's kid brother, you know, mm-hmm. in the the comedic relief, it was just like, whoa. Because, I, I mean, Matt Damon was pretty established at this point. I, I, I mean, he wasn't quite on the level of Clooney, but, you know, he was. Yeah, he was yeah. I, I, th- I think he was well, like. In that trio of stars. I mean, I think if, if you, yeah. you, you would if you would sort of break things down into, uh, as far as the cast is concerned, it's really those three. Have you guys looked at all into the, the alternate casting for this film? The, A little, yeah. The version of this film that uh, there might have been. With the uh, Wilson brothers, Owen and, and Luke, as, as uh, Johnny Disney Depp in, yep. in Matt Damon's role, and possibly the Coens at one point were going to play. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what I meant. Yeah. Bring in the Coens. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. There was somebody that he wanted instead of the the Bernie Mac role. Yeah, Bernie mm-hmm. Mac is so good. I know. Maybe maybe miss maybe miss Bernie Mac. Uh, the only one not still scene, with us. The I scene believe. where he talks about it, where he gets where he buys the van. He <laughs> talks about the uh, yeah. uh, different sorts of lotions and stuff. Fantastic. Uh, Danny Glover. That's who we was looking for. Uh, it was supposed to be uh, Danny Glover in the Bernie Mac role and Alan Arkin in the Carl Reiner role. Could work. Yeah, yeah but I love Carl Reiner in this yeah, so I much. I, I mean, the the whole, practically every role in this film, he was looking for somebody else to do it. Mm-hmm. And you can see the alternate universe version where it's a perfectly good film, except mm-hmm. maybe for the Johnny Depp thing, because I'm so <laughs> tired of Johnny Depp. Well, you, you weren't in 2001, though, were you? Uh, I don't know. My really? Johnny were Depp fatigue. <laughs> Hit, you hit pretty early. Yeah. It was fun. Don't don't, don't front. You were into Johnny Depp. In <laughs> I I think you're you're pushing your Johnny Depp fandom. I, I was into Johnny Depp in 2000. I'm just glad I don't I have to, to watch this in 2017 with Johnny Depp in that yeah. role uh, and, and have to reassess how I feel about and this Helena movie. Bonham Carter then and the uh, <laughs> inevitably in the Julia Roberts role. <laughs> 
we're, I wanted to talk a little more about uh, Soderbergh's long working relationship with uh, George Clooney. But before we move uh, too far away from it, Scott, you were talking about Soderbergh and process and his yeah. fascination with process. And we all jumped in and moved away from that. Did you have any further thoughts on that? Well, no, I just I think that he has just a, a nerd's interest in craft. Like there's this, there's I think there's just a interest in his part in refining his vision and in perfecting his vision and, and having his films really run like a top, like like Ocean's Eleven does, and his films after that. And I think his asserting himself on all these different fronts as an editor, as a cinematographer, is just him gaining more and more control over every aspect of, of the film. And Ocean's Eleven is just such a showcase of like that machine craft that 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 swiss watch quality is like it's, it's kind of a vain film in a in a pleasurable way it just it, it sort of is out there as a big it's a peacock you know of a film that's sort of preening for us and uh and it's pretty and we we admire uh, you know all of its uh, feathers and whatnot so i'm not going to extend that peacock <laughs> metaphor <any further laughs> i want to see exactly how uh, but you, see, you know what i'm saying this is kind of a show-offs film and and um in a good way and i'm fine with that i think putting it in a, a slightly less peacockian um, version of of that sort of that same thing I've been reading a lot about how like people think that one of the unifying things about him is that he's just really interested in in puzzles in how the parts fit together mm-hmm. and he, like his obsession with nonlinearity in films possibly speaks to that like uh, in an interest in finding different ways for those all of those pieces to fit together but you have uh, projects like Che where he's he's looking at like the process by which you know a man becomes a martyr a man becomes a leader you have movies like the informant which like that uh, that is all about the tiny little interface pieces between a man who is arguably not entirely sane but all, like all of the aspects of how he interfaces with the world and how that assembles into the facade of a man. Uh, you have something like Traffic which is about all of the different pieces of how the drug trade fits together mm-hmm. and I think that's a sort of an interesting argument um, and a way to kind of dissect some of his films. Totally. To pick up on something Scott said and bring it into something uh, Tasha wanted to talk about what you were saying about Soderbergh is like a clockwork filmmaker or just you know someone who is very efficient I guess in in filmmaking like I think that might be part of why he uses Clooney so much and other actors like Clooney is not the only actor he has used again even Julia Roberts is you know he used twice and Channing Tatum who we'll get to in Logan Lucky is four or five times you know he's used him so I think he is definitely a director who when he finds an actor who can do what he wants without a lot of, you know, instruction or handholding, he keeps using them. From what I've read, he is not a director who gives a, a whole lot of instruction to actors or like doesn't like spend a lot of time, you know, taking apart the character with them. He trusts the actor to do what he needs them to do. And I think Clooney does what he needs him to do enough and that's why he kept using him at this point really that's I, I, that actually goes against my understanding of him mostly because of i'm pretty sure it was full frontal that there are behind the scenes things on the dvd where he's sitting down with the actors and like he would he would give them their character information and then just have them like play that character in conversations and mm-hmm. do like a lot of improv with them where they would just had to be in character mm-hmm. and they they actually videoed a session he was doing with Julia Roberts, who plays an actress, and he's talking to her and she's responding in character, and then he says something about her Oscar, and she she goes, Wait, am, am I an Oscar winner? 
am I my character now or am I me? What's going on? I can't handle it. And then she like grabs her hair and like literally runs like screaming out of the trailer. And it's it's being played for comedy, certainly. But it is like it comes out of this weird exercise in like improv and role playing. But, but that's in rehearsal. I'm thinking more in terms of like oh, when sure. actually filming, you know, sure, and sure. He, he, he wants someone who who hits their marks <laughs> you know i mean that's a a very like blunt reading i think of what clooney is doing but you know i think just in terms of he when he finds someone dependable he keeps he keeps using them yeah that makes a lot of sense if somebody somebody is that interested in precision and control mm-hmm. like finding actors who can work with his method would make a lot of sense and, and who exemplify that too i mean you think about clooney and tatum and roberts just the way they look and the way they move i mean there's a there's a the fluidity and and beauty to them that there's such a confidence to them uh to, to all of those performers and it, and it really embodies kind of the spirit of, of the films that he's making there's a yeah and they're controlled performers too like there's probably a reason he's never made a movie with nicholas cage whereas Werner herzog <laughs> has you know i, I probably yeah goes to better goes point. together better yeah that's a really good point so is there anything more to say then about soderbergh and clooney i just i they've worked together a bunch of times um including behind the scenes on some things but you know there are the oceans movies and out of sight and solaris and the good german like the two of them in that director and protagonist uh kind of face off they've done quite a bit of his most beloved films solaris and the good german <laughs> actually i actually really like Sol- his yeah, solaris remake so that's yeah and i love yeah. out of sight we we yeah, did that as a dissolve movie yeah. of the week at we some did. point didn't we yep. yeah i just i remember that that is one of those movies that is incredibly satisfying to to give the deep look to and, and dissect because it's just it's such a precision instrument of a movie did he do more with damon besides the informant uh damon was in behind the candelabra Oh, of course. Ah, yes. Sure. Yeah. yeah. He's terrific in that. Yeah. So, yes. And what did he do with Tatum besides Haywire? Well, Magic Mike. Oh, and, sure. And side effects. Side effects. Yeah. Magic yeah. Mike XXL, which is not technically a Soderbergh yeah, movie. Yeah, but, but he was involved. Yeah, I mean, he was a cinematographer on it. Yeah, believe, yeah. So. Gregory Jacobs, his longtime producer, mm-hmm. directed that one. <laughs> it's a good movie. Yeah. 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 It's, I think it's better than the first one, frankly. Yeah, at one point, it turns into the stop making sense of, of male stripper movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should and, loop back to to actual Ocean's I try, I try Eleven. To think, I try to think what would be what will compete with that. Well, you know what will compete with that is just uh, like I I want to know what you guys uh, as we say it's a big cast it's a big cast and it's a big machine and it, to some degree the entire movie is building up to the reveal at the end where they, they pull the uh, tablecloth off the table and leave all the dishes standing, but. Well, I mean, what stands out for you in this movie? There's all of this banter, and I don't actually find it all that memorable. What I find memorable, I guess, is the characters. Like, what, what stands out for you about this movie? I mean, I've already mentioned it, but I love the character of Saul Bloom, and I love that Carl Reiner performance a lot. I just have a, a huge soft spot for it. But there are definitely shots in this movie that are very memorable to me. The the one I'm thinking of in particular is the, the scene where they blow up the old casino, you know, and um, there's just this wonderful shot. There's a couple wonderful shots in, in, in that sequence of crowd shot looking out and everyone turns around except Clooney and then a little farther behind him you have Matt Damon watching Clooney because he is tailing him at this point and it's just 
it's a very memorable shot to me and the um the music in that moment is also really really great but then it's immediately followed by a shot of don Cheadle watching the events the explosion on tv while it is happening out the window behind him like you know it's just like it's such a clever and funny shot the way it's, yep. it's done you know and there's there's more but that is uh, that's yeah, that's the shot and that is that is deafness personified uh there's a shot there's a bit in that like that in out of sight too where <laughs> someone is being thrown a can of, of soda and it just misses totally <laughs> uh uh it's just a wonderful little joke um and i think there's lots of things i you know we we're talking about the dialogue and the snappiness of the dialogue but the staging of these scenes plays a huge part too and i'm thinking about the scene where George Clooney and Brad Pitt are pitching this idea to Elliot Gould, and mm. and you have this the, the whole scene takes place around this table, and then they kind of leave out the part about they they're walking away without mm. saying who they're going <laughs> to rob, and just the the way that is staged with Elliot Gould in the background, and them in the foreground, and them just just dropping that information, and Elliot Gould in his <laughs> row in his open robe, just kind of like working his way towards the camera i mean that is the joke the, the staging of that just sells that joke so well and then like part of that, of that same scene is when he is explaining why he hates terry benedict and he's like he's, he tore down my casino to build some gaudy monstrosity and he's sitting <laughs> and he's elegant like, gold in this like, <laughs> in this robe and chains and it's just so perfect for me, it's always the scene where uh, Brad Pitt rescues Don Cheadle after his uh, latest heist has gone mm. wrong, which that scene does not bear any examination whatsoever. I no. mean, <laughs> he's he's just failed at a heist and is being led away in handcuffs by the cops. How does Brad Pitt know? Why did he come up with a costume? How did he happen to get there so quickly? It, we, it's what it, he does. He's the detail man. It's not worth thinking about. <laughs> but that moment where he's like, how fast can you make something about out of what I just handed you? And Don Chittle's like, it's already done. And then the cop car blows up. There's just that is the level of professionalism you want out of your your heist buddies is like the ability to deal with anything with no notice. I think there's something kind of magical about a camera floating through a casino, too, with so much mm-hmm. going on. If it weren't for Hard Eight, I would say this is probably the movie that does it best but it doesn't do it very well um i mean that movie has like it takes on an otherworldly quality in, in that film but this one it just you kind of capture the excitement of being there on the floor without actually having to deal with uh, the secondhand smoke that made <laughs> vegas unbearable for me the last time i went um but i in terms of other standouts I, don Cheadle is so fun in this movie i mean i've never seen him be this comedic in a film before or maybe even since then uh but just the confidence which, we, which he handles this ridiculous made-up cockney uh, uh <laughs> Uh, rhyming slang. Uh, this is uh, we're Barney. Uh, yeah, we're Barney. You know, rubble, rubble, trouble. You know, one as I was reading up on this film, one consistent note I I came across was that his accent is terrible. That he should be ashamed. What he was he doing? That's part of what's fun, though. I, that's that's how I feel about yeah. it. Like apparently, uh, so imagine, so many like... people looking back on the film are like, and it's widely acknowledged as one of the worst accents ever done in a movie. And I'm like, really? I just all I processed was that he's he's fun. Yeah, I, I yeah, can't. I, how does anybody say, "Oh darn, we missed 
it. Well, like, I think of also, he, of course, he meant to do it that. I mean, yeah. you know, we don't know anything about this character. It could just be an affect. The whole accent yeah, could be an affectation. That's how, I, that's how I always read it. Mm-hmm. Is, is that it's an affectation? I guess that's kind of the benefit of leaving these characters fairly loosely drawn, is you can give them more interesting backstories. You can interpret them in the whatever way makes the film more fun for you. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed Brad Pitt eating in yeah. every scene yes. too. That's a nice. That's that a nice running bit. Well, apparently the the Cockney accent was Cheadle's choice. It was from an earlier version of the script and it had been taken out, but he wanted to put it back in. Um, so that was that was his choice. Although and, at the last minute, he decided he he felt that it wasn't working and he wanted to take it back out. Oh, and really? his, his agent told him he couldn't, and then he he got terrible reviews and he fired her. He Aww. that's what he claims in an interview at least. Oh, I didn't read that. That's sad. But you're going to bring up why Brad Pitt is eating all the time, aren't oh, you? Oh no, I was just saying like Brad Pitt eating it like that was his choice too. You, you mm-hmm. know, and it's it, it's great. It's like one of the fun things that people love to mention about this movie. Brad Pitt's always eating. <laughs> yeah, and he, he has the tattoo that you can't see. That, that that always stood out to me is like you can just see there's like a tribal tattoo like on his wrist like coming up his hand and you only ever see like a couple inches of it. Did you watch the widescreen version? Uh, yes. Because see, I, I bet that there are versions where you can see more of that. I, there was one well, He's of always the, wearing a suit. One of the things I ran across was that uh, so in the, the scene where he's scarfing down shrimp and talking to Matt Damon mm-hmm. like <laughs> apparently, apparently they kept shooting that and he ate like 40 shrimp. <laughs> that day but there's it, it the one of the things i was reading was like oh there's a continuity error there where sometimes he's holding a goblet sometimes he's holding a plate of shrimp uh-huh. in the widescreen version it's there's one medium shot where you can see the two of them and he's holding a goblet every other shot is like chest up and you can't see what's in his hand so there's a continuity error that you can't see in the widescreen version <laughs> and i wonder if in the same sort of way there's there's shots other way in other versions where you can actually see his tattoo well that certainly undercuts what we were saying about uh so Berg's precision. Uh, <laughs> yeah, formats. Formats are going to screw you. But yeah, apparently Brad Pitt wanted his character to be eating constantly because he thought, you know, he's he's so busy all the time, he would never get a chance to sit down and eat a meal. Yeah. So like, he just, he figured he would be cramming food into his face whenever he had the opportunity, which I just, I like the thought-throughness of that. It is kind of a fun tweak of the whole movie star image or persona, like, because, you know, you don't, you don't look that sexy when you're when you're eating. I mean, Brad Pitt does, but, you know, <laughs> on the scale of Brad Pitt's sexiness, probably slightly less when he is eating. Especially cramming a, a random burger into your mouth. Well, before we uh, before we go on this, can we can we talk a little bit about the test plot? Yeah, we can. I hate the test plot so much. Really? Yeah. Why? I love that moment of vulnerability that I mentioned over the table. But I, but I think that extends to the whole character, though. I think that the whole thing makes him a lot more vulnerable and interesting than the tests weren't there. The plot to win her back wasn't a, a central to why, his motivation. It's a good motivation, and the fact that he lies to the crew about it. Like, as, as Scott pointed out earlier, we don't have a big betrayal plot, and we don't have the classic heist film thing where some idiot goes off the reservation and spends money and, as a result, gets caught and the whole thing unravels. But what we do have here is a a plot that's basically, I want to steal $160 million because I'm mad at the dude that is dating my ex-wife. And that's fine, except that her role in it is just, she's she's one of those dry, humorless scolds that's always turning up in movies that are primarily about men misbehaving in fun ways. And then at the end, she's like, you know what? I I always liked you better than him anyway. Yes, he, he doesn't make me cry and you do. But for no stated reason whatsoever, since I don't want him anymore because of what I saw in the video, I want you again. And I, for me, that's, that just that's, doesn't That's fly. not how I, how I read that uh, relationship 
at at all. Like I, I don't see her as a, a humorless scold. I see her as someone who's been hurt and and you know is trying to not get hurt again by a man that she still clearly loves and has tried to replace with a man who is the polar opposite of him in a lot of ways. I, I agree that like there it doesn't feel like she has a lot to do here other than like be his motivation. But I think that as motivation it works and she gives a performance that shows a emotional connection there that validates his his motivation. Yeah, what Genevieve said. <laughs> I think with Genevieve as, as well, but it's yeah, that is not the strongest part of the element no. of the film by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I don't. But I mean, ultimately, she has to to be one or extracted or or removed from that situation, and she herself does not have much to do with that. She's there's she's a bit of a trophy, but, but indeed, but she gets more to do in the sequel, <laughs> <laughs> including true. imitating Julia true. Roberts. Classic. Uh, <laughs> Should we talk yeah. briefly about the sequels? I, 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 I don't have a very good memory. I, yeah. yeah, I have a very thin memory of everything about the sequels except the "Hey, Julia Roberts looks like Julia Roberts" plot. Everybody loves the second one, though. Like all my like hardcore film people. The second are one's in very love much it the, it's so film- the crafty one. I it's mean. very. It's also very French New Wave inspired, yeah. and, and and kind of has that going for it. I mean, the third it just, it doesn't. The, third is the, the problem one that feels with the like second. Well, the second one. The, the problem with that one is it just doesn't work as a story. It's, it's such a, mm-hmm. an amazingly told story, and the second one is just all like surface pleasures and film technique, and it's fun. I'd like to revisit it at some point. I, I remember the third one being pretty fun too. Yeah, it, it is the series running out of steam clearly, but uh, but still, for what it is, it's it's pretty pretty entertaining. Yeah, I mean, the, the second sequel felt like it was a, a return to the the well mm-hmm. in a way. The back, second back to Vegas, right? In a way, the second one, the second one was an experiment, and it was an extension, uh, and him trying to push himself a little bit. And uh, third, third, it feels a little bit on the safe side, but they're fun. They're a fun trilogy. Well, in a way, it kind of feels like Logan Lucky is a a fourth sequel to Ocean's Eleven, just with completely different cast of characters <laughs> played by a completely different group of people. Uh, we'll get into that in the next uh, half of the episode. Um, but in the meantime, we've got some feedback for you. We'll be right back with that. So we do have some feedback on our recent episodes on uh, Battle of Algiers, but we'll get into that next time. Uh, For the moment, because of our compressed recording schedule, uh, we were behind on apes-related feedback. Keith, you want to kick us off with some apes? Sure. Benjamin sent us a long and thoughtful letter about the new Planet of the Apes series, exploring a Matt Reeves interview about why CGI creation started off in the hands of directors like George Lucas and Peter Jackson. He has a lot to say in that letter, and we recommend you check out the whole thing over on Facebook. But here's an excerpt. I'm surprised you guys and many others haven't mentioned how War for the Planet of the Apes represents what I think is a major milestone in film history, as it completes the first ever trilogy where the main character of a live-action film franchise is a fully CGI creation. I think this presents an interesting future. While War for the Planet of the Apes underwhelmed somewhat at the box office, it was still a financially successful franchise built entirely on a CGI character in films like Jon Favreau's Lion King and Avatar 2 through 5 will continue to challenge our notion of what a film star is, what we consider animation, and how far people will go to empathize with digital creations. Do you think we'll see a greater rise in the number of fully CGI film protagonists? Or does the hassle and effort mean it will only be reserved for a small number of powerful auteurs with huge budgets? Also, as the rise of digital manipulation advances with human faces, how will we be able to judge the performances of actors both fully CGI'd or not? 
when all of it could have been manipulated later in post-production. There are a couple of really fascinating uh, questions there. I want to take up the second one first. Whenever you're asking a question that's basically, how are we going to be able to judge people better? Uh, My knee-jerk response is, why does it matter? Why does it matter whether that's actually Brad Pitt's performance or it's slightly changed? Like... We have the same thing going on in music with auto-tune, and people are so quick to jump on on judging whether something's been auto-tuned or not. And my response is usually, well, how do the results sound? And if they sound too, you know, tinny or artificial or shaved off because of uh, digital interference, that's one thing. But if you're just looking for a way to separate authentic people from people who've had some sort of digital help – why is that so important to you? Like, I don't care whether it's pure, unadulterated Brad Pitt or Brad Pitt with tiny, tiny digital corrections. So I'm not sure that it matters per se, unless you're an Oscar voter and you're trying to <laughs> judge the best performance of the year and you're afraid that somebody might not have actually performed that performance, which is a big concern for them, honestly. Well, I think there's also a distinction to be made between, quote, fully CGI characters and motion capture characters, because motion capture does require a performance of a type beyond just vocals. You know, we talked about that in our War for the Planet of the Apes episode about the physicality that goes into that performance. And I think we also discussed the very smart decision to leave Caesar's eyes human, which I think is probably something that is these type of performances continue creators would be smart to emulate to kind of like keep the human eyes as human as possible in order to bring across a nuanced performance in a way that like uh, that might be harder to bring through a complete cgi character i'm kind of fascinated by the idea of digital manipulation on a human scale i know that uh, robert zemeckis for one is somebody who actually goes in and tinkers with every shot in the film digitally in in ways that are so subtle that we could not identify them, um, which is kind of scary in a way. I kind of like it. I kind of like having full CGI creations like the ones in War War for the Planet of the Apes just just so I'm conscious of the fact that this is something that's being done with technology and and not something that's meant to kind of fool us into believing uh, something is real when it isn't. So you're not down with the whole removing Superman's mustache because Harry Cahill came back (laughs) Justice League reshoots. Uh, oh my gosh, that just reminded me of a of a Silicon Valley bit where uh, the lead character nearly takes a job dealing with mustache technology. Uh, <laughs> which also, okay, I, I'm going to just keep going with Silicon Valley jokes for some reason. <laughs> yeah. but Ocean's Eleven is described, of course, by Jared as a uh, 2001 casino heist film starring Julia Roberts and 11 men. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite jokes in that show. Um, but in any case, uh, the, other th- the thing that interests me, too, about the future of this, and I think we'll see more and more of it, is how it's going to filter down to filmmakers uh, working on smaller budgets. Because so, presumably this technology will become more affordable and things uh, and something that, that somebody with a common laptop can do something like what you see in War for the Planet of the Apes and what, what kind of effect that's going to have uh, on film, which could be quite seismic, I would think. Uh, but we're not there yet. It's really still too expensive to do any of this stuff yeah it is really expensive but i do i do think that it's going to become cheaper and cheaper especially as more and more of these little specialty companies get into it and there's more and more competition as software gets faster and faster i think that this is something that we're going to see improvements in i think the big 
question as far as whether it's going to be become a lot more common is kind of what happens with the film industry in terms of all of these like very escapist and fantasy related stories that we're seeing right now. I feel like the way politics is going, we're not going to run out of the desire for escapism anytime soon. But, you know, typically these kind of things wax and wane in terms of more realistic stories about people, more fantasy stories. The kind of fantasy stories that are being told today, I think, are going to rely a lot more on CGI characters and it's going to be a lot more useful for filmmakers to have that tool. So I think it really depends on, you know, is Game of Thrones going to continue to kick off like all of these fantasy franchises where you're going to have a lot of non-human characters wandering around? If so, that's going to be a tool that people are going to want to use. Here's another theoretical question for you. If it weren't horrible and distracting and awful and made me feel gross, who would have gotten credit for Grand Moff Tarkin's performance in uh, Rogue One? That's a really interesting thought. Well, I mean, I guess you have to take into account who created the character in the first place. Like, that was building on a character that had already been created. But yeah, as a head-scratcher. It's not that much of a head-scratcher. I mean, we, we, we started dealing with this at least back with Zemeckis on Back to the Future 2 and his attempts to digitally recreate Crispin Glover because Crispin Glover, he and Crispin Glover were on the outs. Like, this has been around for a while and SAG has been dealing with it for a while. I think we're just going to end up with uh, you know, a lot of contractual obligations for who gets credit for that kind of thing. Mm. Saga is also requiring us to at least do one more feedback letter. So <laughs> let's uh, let's have some thoughts on whether those damn dirty apes are going to be the maniacs who blow it all up. Scott, you want to read this letter for uh, us? Sure. Uh, Gregory in Washington, D.C. writes, I feel compelled to weigh in on the seemingly half-hearted defense of Dr. Zayas's goal to suppress progress in ape society. Your reluctant acceptance that he may be right to try to prevent the destiny of destruction brought about by human technological development was very surprising to me. Considering this to its logical conclusion, the position advocates for trusting the wisdom of theocrats to halt progress in a vain attempt to fend off a seemingly inevitable future of self-destruction. I posit this only results in a stagnant stasis of serfdom. The apes already have gunpowder, yet do not seem to exhibit the belligerent interspecies tendency of humans. Why should we assume they will make the same mistakes of nuclear-armed homo sapiens? Furthermore, even if eventual destruction is inevitable, is it so better to persist indefinitely in arrested development than to flourish culturally and technologically, even with a civilizational expiration date? Of the many themes in the movie, I find the conflict of science, reason, and progress versus stability, religion, and security the most compelling. Ultimately, the movie shows us the horrific consequences of unfettered technological progress, but I do not think it tells us this outcome is inevitable. I mean, I, I think what you've really done with this letter is kind of crystallize the question at the center of it. I don't, I don't think it resolves it one way or the other. I think you make a very good case for why it might not turn out that way for the apes, but there's nothing in, the, in the, the film itself to say it won't turn out that way for the apes. So yeah, I think there's a certain amount of ambiguity hanging around Dr. Zayas. I don't think any of us are like strongly team Zayas coming out of that movie. But like you said, it is sort of an ambiguous movie around those questions that you crystallize in this letter. And I think we were just trying to like kind of work out the other angle of that question. But also nuclear weapons are really scary. <laughs> and, and I think like that specifically being the, the future that is being alluded to here, it gives an extra, I think, weight to Dr. Zayas's point of view that if it was just like more generally technological advances, it would be, I think, a lot easier to see that as like purely villainous. But when you're talking about, you know, something that has the ability to 
destroy a planet, it's easier to see the appeal of uh, stagnant stasis, as you, as you put it. How, how would they destroy it? Would they, would they blow it up? The maniacs. <laughs> I mean, I was thrown for a loop by this film because I think for so much of it, you're with Charlton Heston and you're upset that uh, Dr. Zayas is, is denying that which we understand to be to be real and you, you, you feel engaged as a rational person, as a person who believes in science. You feel uh, you know enraged that Dr. Zayas takes the, the stance that he does and so the ending does upend, it does at least make you question yourself a little bit. I, I don't think we get to a point where, where we're 100% on board with what <laughs> Dr. Zayas is, is doing but it does throw a little sand which is Good. I mean, that's what you want, some, a little ambiguity. Well, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll head across the country to North Carolina to see how a similar heist plays out in the blue-collar heartland, far away from the fountains of the Bellagio. Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be shopping for a better car that is more deserving of our $13 million payoff. See you next time. Come on, come on. 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 Come